It was a famous Italian and amateur astronomer, Leonardo da Vinci, who once said that the discovery of a good wine is increasingly better for mankind than the discovery of a new star. Some would say that adage is as true now as it was in Leonardo's day. And one, albeit incidental, reason that we look forward to the Giro each year is the opportunity it affords to enjoy, indeed imbibe, one of Italy's great natural treasures. This year, as in 2020, the Cycling Podcast has gotten together with Divine Sellers of London to offer an enological homage to the Corsa Rosa. Chief Rootmaster, our viticultural Mauro Veni, is once again Greg Andrews of Divine Cellars. I sat down with Greg last week to discuss our selections for this year and indulge our mutual passion for most things Italian and red, white and even fizzy and pink. Greg, first of all, great to have you back for another year with the Cycling Podcast Um Divine Sellers and Cycling Podcast presenting the, the Giro dei Vini, um, the Giro of, of the wines of the Giro. And you and I have put our heads together and we've come up with another six bottles, uh, uh, a case for this year's Giro. But first of all, I wanted to ask you, when you saw the Giro route for this year, what did you, from a, from a, a wine point of view and um, when you started thinking about having to select wines... For that route, I mean, it's pretty good, wasn't it? I mean, um, you know, Puglia, Tuscany, Piedmont—you couldn't really hope for for much better, could you? Absolutely. But first of all, it's great to be back with the cycling podcast. Um, and when I did look at the map, it was it was really exciting, actually, in terms of taking us into some different areas to where we went last year. Um, also, sort of looking up north in sort of Friuli and around the northeast of Italy, there's a you know a lot of good things going on in terms of wine up there. So. And the, the tour does focus a little bit up there and then through Tuscany, leaving us you know, some very good wines to have a crack at, really. And I think, I think the case we've put together, I like to think, sort of showcases that. I mean, we could go, we could do another dozen wines, you know. There's so much good wine you know, through these areas. It was really good fun. I mean, sure, we're not in Sicily like we were last year, but... Yeah, there are some really good, really good wines on show, actually, and we can have a look. We'll sort of discuss now, that in further detail. Now, Greg, your shop is in uh, London in the UK and obviously wine consumers in the UK are a lot better informed and a lot more, um, well, I suppose sophisticated than they once were maybe 20, 30 years ago. But when people think of Italian wine, they still think of Chianti, Barolo, um, maybe Valpolicella. But what are your current feelings, thoughts about the way wine in Italy is developing and the way sort of Italy has opened itself to a more international market and more international palates, I suppose, over the last 10, 20, 30 years? I think you, you certainly still have the historical customers who embrace the sort of traditional Italy. Uh, for example, your sort of your Tuscan Reds and your Nebbiolos and Barolos. Oh, and Anna Moroni, but I think what you're also also starting to see is people wanting a sense of adventure, and I think Italy with over well over 400 classified grape varieties and probably another further 400 that are unclassified, it's almost a sense of adventure, something to discover. You can always pull out something different, and I think certainly the younger consumers are quite excited by that. And in terms of some of the different styles that that are coming out of Italy, in terms of 
some respects in some areas there are no rules you know in terms of sure with the regions of Tuscany and Bar and Piedmont there are some restrictive DO rules but then you go out, out sometimes outside of that where some people are just creating some really fabulous table wines uh, that push those boundaries that do different things and I think uh, and I think the consumers I've got the, the younger consumer has an appetite for that for something different and almost that sense of adventure so you know they're not afraid to get out they want to they want to drink sort of things like skiava from alto dg they want they want to drink sort of some different wines whether they be natural or more traditional but just things that haven't been on the radar previously i think there's a greater appetite for people to want to try something new and different and i think italy has that phenomenal diversity that it offers people to say hang on you know try something different we've got you know we've got something that's not just it's different but it's just been on the rate under the radar here in the uk and it's a really good opportunity to sort of go through and do different things and you mentioned young consumers there in the in the uk greg but um young winemakers in italy i mean there's been a lot of coverage over the last 10 years or so about young people leaving italy big ex exodus of young people from italy but then you also see a lot of young people getting into, well, craft breweries. There are a lot of craft breweries being set up by young Italians, but also winemaking. There are some pretty sort of dynamic and exciting Italian, young Italian winemakers. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the, one of the producers we work with, Fra, uh, Francesco, who produces the Cosimo Massini wines, he, he, he's a biodynamic farmer and he's been making wine now eight years, uh, and his wines have sort of come on strength to strength. And he's, he certainly embraces modern techniques and pushes those boundaries, like using a bit of carbonic maceration and things like that to create a softer, juicier wine that for, for a Tuscan producer is quite, is quite refreshing. It's very new ground and sort of sheds some different light. And a couple of the other guys we've got that we're working on are second generation of, second generation of the family where... I think it's like a lot of children, they want to break the mould set by their parents and do something different. And these guys are producing some very innovative Francis styles. Um, for example, I think the last last year we had Elisabetta Foradori's uh, Taroldigo. Now, her, last year her son took her over the reins and the style of the wines is far fresher and far more energetic to a point where it's opened up to a, diff a totally different market where... For lack of a better word, a lot of the hipster, you know, the hipsters, the younger drinkers weren't really interested in drinking mum's old, more traditional style wine, which was phenomenal in itself. But he's come onto the scene and done something a lot fresher, put a wax seal on the wine and it's a lot more progressive and it sells out, you know. So I think exactly what you're saying, that younger generation who are coming through doing progressive things, I think has created a lot of excitement, a lot of good energy in in the Italian wine scene, really. Talking about young winemakers, I think, Greg, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but um, the first wine that we're going to get to as we sort of tour around um, the Giro route now is um, the Yuli uh, Winery in Piedmont. And and I don't think you knew this, Greg, but actually I think the Giro d'Italia actually goes past the front door um, 115 kilometers into stage two so we'll be looking out on the helicopter shots but I think that is quite a young winemaker 
career, if I'm not mistaken, is it Fabrizio, Yuli? Uh, but we've we've picked uh, Barbera, which is the classic sort of workhorse Piedmontese red. Tell us a little bit about that, Greg. One of the big big reasons for selecting, I mean, having met um, having met, having met met the uh, the guys at sort of at a, a wine fair in London a couple of years ago. I was quite impressed with the the approach and just sort of generosity of the wine, where some Barbera can be a little bit cumbersome and you sort of need to take time to get to reflect and get to know it. Whereas I think the Umberta just struck me as a really accessible wine that offered some really generous flavours up front, but equally it was really it was it was really a pleasure to drink. And I thought you know with the uh, I like the ethos behind them, the organic ethos, where they want to they want to actually the grapes that they use they want they want to invest their time in producing better quality fruit, which of course is the building blocks to making making a better wine. I mean, you can't make a good wine with bad fruit, and ultimately the point where these guys are starting are giving the wine every chance to be as as full and as, as joyous as possible really and I think you know they, their passion was very clear when I met them in terms of when I met them I think I met he and his wife at the time and they were very much um, I mean fortunate, I was fortunate enough to taste the whole range there um, and this very much is their entry level into the range but it's still a delightful wine and we it was too good to miss out on this occasion and um, it is coincidental that it's as close I tried to pick wines that were relatively close to the t- to the Giro but in this case I think you're really pleased that we've got really close to the um, the stage actually really and you mentioned there well I don't know whether they class themselves as um, natural wine or it's certainly organic you and I had a conversation earlier didn't we about biodynamic versus organic versus natural wine and I know you, you've got a lot in your shop um, that, that are organic and biodynamic can you just spell out the difference for us so so in essence I mean the the difference between organic and biodynamic is uh, I suppose I often view them as a uh, as two distinct distinct sets of growers where the overlap is what you call natural winemakers I suppose uh, who who could be classified as both, but effectively organic is where you're. I think most people are, are pretty familiar with the um, no chemical fertilizers, pesticides, or herbicides, and effectively just using sort of natural, either natural alternatives. And what I mean by that is sort of organic alternative, like for example, manure, using manure as a fertilizer, etc. Using other alternatives, um, whereas biodynamics is actually a an agricultural system based on 20, 24 different tenants laid out by German scientist Steiner back in 1924 uh, that embrace sustainable agriculture. And a lot of it's based on traditional methods, harvesting and planting on the lunar cycle, a number of natural preparations that you could, you could, call, you could call those organic. But I think the, the big facet is biodynamics view the farm or the what the wine the vineyard in, in this conversation as an ecosystem so they like to allow while while herbs and grasses to grow between the vines on the premise that allowing insects to eat eat that foliage that keeps everything in check and the, allowing wild birds and animals that then keep the insect insects in check so it's all about a 
I suppose, a balance, a sustainable balance that they're operating within the winery. And I think very much so it's some people some people say, oh, it's um, that they're the same, but they're not because in biodynamic viticulture, you can use some non-organic preparations equally organic viticulture they don't go through the same level of preparation that you do in biodynamics either um, so one of the tenants involves what they call um, creating a, a compost of local cow horns with with manure and then burying that in a corner of the vineyard to influence the microorganic balance of the soil now without getting too spiritual or going into the do the whys and whatever it's you don't do that in organic or level of organics. You would just sort of spread the relative, the alternate fertilizer that you have available, i.e., cow manure or whatever. Whereas biodynamics is definitely a lot more local focused and sort of looking at sort of a, a more sustainable version of traditional agriculture. Um, but either way, you don't do either if you don't prioritize uh, better fruit or you, or you want a better quality product because. It, in either organic or biodynamic, there's a lot more effort than conventional agriculture. And as a result, you're not going to put all of that effort to make something that's bland and uneventful without a signature. And I think one thing's for sure, both organic and biodynamic producers are hell-bent on having a recognisable signature with their white. Um, and I think taking that sort of step further, a subset of that community would like to produce natural wines where effectively they're doing even less to the wine where they're not filtering or finding it or they're not adding any sulfur as a preservative at any point in the production and that's a little more extreme and can be a little bit more volatile at times sometimes the results can be absolutely fantastic if all the parts are in place but equally they're less stable and i think a lot of the producers i've met over the years you know are slightly conservative when it comes to that approach just simply they they want the wine to be as as effectively as they intend they want to give the wine every chance to be as they intended it to be as possible and that means adding a small amount of sulfur to the wine just to stabilize it like the guys at Yuli do it's fantastic it just helps them do that we talked about it earlier didn't we greg my sort of slight misgivings about some natural wines and i use the word funky which is a uh, word that's I guess quite often used to describe natural wines. What does that mean? Um, how would you define that? I mean, it's sort of a bit farmyardy, isn't it? <laughs> funky is funky is certainly one of the one of the words I we get. I suppose um, we get thrown in describing natural wines. Tasting like cider is another, and sort of smelling like a horse's barn is another. Um, <laughs> but you know, effectively, the the intention of creating the reason why people want to create a natural wine is they feel it shows a more distinct link to the area in which it's produced or the terroir and the the smells, the aromas and everything from the, from the surrounds by that. Now, in some cases, because of the lack of, uh, I suppose in some cases, the lack of reg regulation and the lack of use of some of the stabilising methods like a little bit of sulphur, um, the wines can be a, little, be a little bit more volatile and they can be a little bit more more erratic. So, for example, you may taste the... They're very much a living a living thing. So you could taste the wine today and you could think it's rubbish, you could think it's really funky, and then six months later, that could evolve and, ta and, and, and take on a different profile. Um, and in many cases, the producers, 
some some of them they want to embrace that, but equally some of them who re, who understand the commercial the commercial aspect don't want anyone to taste the wine and think, oh, that's shocking. I'm never going to try that again. You know, they they do mitigate some of those risks by using a tiny little bit of sulphur and just sort of making something a little bit more more conventional conventional but stable is a better word to, word to use but it we do have people who embrace that style and do come in and say look i want something i want this a light red wine with bags of acidity and, and volatility and yeah that's great we can certainly help them but i'd say sort of in the main most people want to know that want to know they're drinking something that's healthier and, and being had less manipulation is a good word to use i think you know so but yeah, it's, it's it's a really interesting sort of sphere and there's a lot of arguments and a lot of conjecture over who's right and who's wrong. But the, I think the reality is, as as one natural producer once said to me, he said, he said, who am I to tell you what's right or wrong? As long as you're enjoying what's in your glass is the end result. So Greg, unfortunately, so that's stage two. We've got the Yuli Barbera and then we've got six more days until the next one. We're going to have to go all the way down the peninsula to the southernmost point of this year's Giro and we're going to Puglia. And the next one we've got is the San Marzano. The, it's a Negro Amaro, isn't it? Yes, the San Marzano. Fabulous wine. Um, we actually sort of going down to Puglia, as all, we were almost spoiled for choice. You know there are there are some fantastic varietals down that way that you just don't see th- anywhere else in the world. You know things like Nero de Troya, Negramaro, you know uh, Primitivo, another one. You're almost spoiled for ch- for choice in terms of vibrant, full-bodied, juice-driven wines. And I think um, we were co- we ca- we did come across the San Marzano and just I think the. The quality for us, the the quality for the you know, it's really a phenomenal phenomenal value for that for the wine you're getting really, and that was that screamed out out to us, and it really is a fantastic benchmark example of Negramana. Um, you know, it's just yeah, and it's been one of certainly we've been stocking this wine for about six weeks, and it's just been we've had some incredible feedback for it. So it was almost criminal not to put this in the selection. Um, I think whilst given we were talking talking about organic and biodynamic viticulture a couple of minutes ago, in the because of the lack of disease pressure down in the south of Italy, a lot of these vineyards are actually uh, organic by the fact that they don't need to use herbicides or pesticides down there at all, um, just because of the, the the strength of the climate that they're working in. Um, and definitely they don't need to use fertilizers either and and the kind of the kind of climate greg that lends itself to that is it, it's quite dry it's um, not particularly humid exactly i mean in terms of really dry conditions uh loads of sunlight and you know effectively that ideal mediterranean climate that you get you know through southern europe the south of france spain greece all of those areas do do lend itself to the production of these wonderful juice-driven wines um, that are just have got you know yes you've got some good tannins there as well but there's just so much flavour jam-packed into these wines it's you know it's fantastic I mean the and certainly the Negramaro is a good example of that I think I think it really does lend itself to um, to good I suppose good really good drinking around the sort of 15 pound mark to be fair you know in terms of it's and 
Our experiences certainly we've seen customers vote with it, vote, vote with their feet and come back, come back for this wine. It's been, it's been fantastic. I mean, I, unfortunately, I've not managed to get down there myself, but you know, it's definitely on the agenda. That's for sure. So, very envious of those following the tour will be going through. That's for sure. Still gassing on fueling, not sure what or when to eat and drink. On rights that matter, never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Greg, before we get any further around Italy, I want you to tell us very quickly how you came to work in wine and what's what's your wine origin story in about three in about three minutes. My wine origin story. <laughs> so, so aside from, I think a lot of people in my position, it probably goes back to university, where um, you end up. Work, I ended up working as a waiter in a in a reasonable restaurant in Brisbane and Australia, and that's kind of what I mean. Mum and Dad always drank always loved their wines but when you started started working as a as a waiter uh for quite a nice hotel in brisbane kind of fueled that a little bit further and became a massive hobby for me and then when i arrived in the uk back in 98 i didn't want to wear the suit because i was working in sort of um for Qantas airways in their strategic planning area didn't want to wear the suit for a while so so I worked at I worked at Bluebird when it first opened. Yeah, the famous Conran Conran restaurant. Yes, the Terence Conran restaurants. Um, working. I mean, I was I was there while John Tarode was head chef as well. So it was good fun. The Australian invasion vibe <laughs> in a big way, um, but it it did really open the doors, open my eyes to the wines of you know wines in Europe, and just started to fuel that passion. Where I invested quite a few courses myself, and you know close to a couple hundred vineyard visits you know over, over the next 10 years where in 2009 whilst I was working as a software consultant I uh, I started selling started selling wines on a market stall and set, started up a wine club where I was selling to friends and doing tastings while I still had a full-time job and then two years later opened a shop the wine cellars just around the corner from where I live here in Clapham and you know and we we also grew that to opening a wine bar and then you know, just over time, we then condensed that. So we've just got the one operation now um, in Clapham North. But, you know, it's certainly a, it's been a, I, I freely admit, it's been a hell of a lot of hard work, but equally it doesn't feel like hard work. You know, it doesn't, it's almost consuming. And the more you realise you don't, um, the more you, you start to learn and, and immerse yourself in wine, the more you realise you don't know. And, well, that's that's the thing with wine, isn't it? That um, it's such a, a vast subject. And as soon as people, I mean, this is much more the case for you than it is for me. But as soon as people think you know a little bit about wine, they expect you to know absolutely everything. And, um, you know, I've got friends who work in the wine industry and, you know, they they wine makers. But if you, you know, if you ask them about even a quite a well-known region, you ask them about Amarone or something, they have no idea because they simply, people can't get around to tasting, you know, um, even a tiny fraction of the wines that there are. Well, even even in Italy, you know, like um, one of the members of a team, you know, Luciana, who works with me, she's, 
you know she, she's a she used to be a sommelier she grew up in um she grew up in piedmont working in a family restaurant so and she freely admits she she knows a lot about tuscany but she knows a hell of a lot more about Friuli and piedmont and sort of the north the east of italy and sicily and she's like ah i only know a little bit and she knows a phenomenal amount but it's almost just you know as i said before there's a there's over 800 varietals 400 that are categorized in italy and to get to the bottom of you know in terms of the bottom of that you just never will you just keep finding more and more and that's that's what i love about wine there's always something you'll never learn every you'll never know everything and that's a that's a great thing because you can always sort of always be captivated and learn something new and i think you know for me wine's about and I've, i i say this every tasting we do wine's about being inclusive and sharing sharing that knowledge to whoever's willing to listen you know and you know equally it's there to be celebrated it's you know it's there to be enjoyed well you said greg that it all started for you in a restaurant um so serving food the next wine on the list sounds like a food because we've got the pecorino which i must admit when i first saw that on the italian pecorino. Uh, wine list uh, many years ago that confused me slightly but again this one we've done pretty well here greg this one's only 15 kilometers off the route of stage nine through abruzzo so we're doing doing better than last year's tour we've got a few wines really almost on the route haven't we um no but the the yeah the pecorino julio in abruzzo it's fantastic i think this is a absolutely phenomenal seafood wine you know really fresh and you know really vibrant um, I remember when I first tried this wine, I had it with fish and chips and it was absolutely perfect because it's got that acidity, that brightness that just cuts through, cuts through the sort of the fats of something like a fish and chips. It's really, really brilliant. Equally, any, any you know, having it with things like cheese with a little bit of salinity will also work incredibly well. It, you know, goat's cheese or something like that. You know, even even a dried pecorino would <laughs> would also go reasonably well with it, actually. But the reality is, in terms of as a wine, it's it's about freshness and really a vibrancy that when you're sitting down in the restaurant, if or you're eating of seafood, I think this really really comes into the equation. It's just a lo a lovely, really dry, vivacious wine, actually. And Greg. I'm terribly unprepared here because I remember last year I looked this up and I found out why it was called Pecorino. Pecorino, of course, it sort of means little sheep um, and that obviously applies to the cheese. And I think there was quite a good story about or a good theory about why the grape variety was called Pecorino. But I, have, I have heard several theories of this, but the one that um, the one that seems to have sort of gained the most credibility, shall we say, um, is the fact that the bunch of grapes almost resembles a woolly sheep, you know, in terms of the, the, the sheep's coat. That's that's it. Yeah, 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 and in terms of really sort of a really tight bunch of grapes in terms of very little space between the, the berries and almost looks like, a you know, the, the wool on a, on a really sort of woolly sheep um, is where it came from. I mean... No sheep were harmed in the production in this wine, absolutely. Um, so, but it's not. I mean, they may have sheep grazing in between the vines to keep the foliage down, but um, but yeah, no, these guys, um, they're organic producers as well. So you know, in terms of, um, they're not biodynamic, but but definitely that that story I believe is true in terms of when the grape was initially named, it was named because of that. 
Um, yeah, that's definitely true. And it's one of those, it's a nice story though. I can see where they came up with it. Well, next, Greg, we're moving um, up the peninsula and we're moving to, well, where I sort of first fell in love with Italian wine in Tuscany. But we're going to Montalcino on the Giro and we're not, we haven't got a Brunello or a Rosso di Montalcino. We've committed sacrilege really by doing that. Um, but on stage 12, just off the route, we've got the Cosimo Maria Mazzini and, um, you know, you talked about your, all your vineyard visits and I know you've got a personal relationship with these guys. Uh, absolutely. It would have been fantastic to do a Montalcino, but um, we did Blown the budget, wouldn't it, Greg? I was about to say, we, we'd be drinking some pretty ropey stuff out, <laughs> outside if we'd gone that, I think. So we would have had to sort of come up with a balance that worked and I think um, there are a couple of wines definitely in uh, in the frame, but uh, my good friend Francesco, um, I wanted to sort of show. I mean, San Mignato is actually famous um, for truffles, um, and when you go into the town, there's even a truffle restaurant where he has are they black truffles. Those ones, yes, yeah, black. Um, he don't. They do. They predominantly black truffles, and the truffle festival is through October in the first two weeks in November, um, and you know, it's, it really lends itself to that sort of style of food. And I remember um, Francesco himself, he he works biodynamically, so that, you know, he invests a lot of time in creating the best quality fruit. And this particular wine is uh, pure Sangiovese, uh, where it's pressed, goes into concrete tanks. Uh, and, the, and he does that not because of the, because he has these, fantastic old concrete tanks in the winery um yes that helps but it's more to preserve the freshness of the wine you know he's, he's made the decision that with nicole um freshness is the main thing he wanted to and i think in terms of for me this is sort of really is benchmark sangiovese at its purest form uh, it's got a lovely weight to it whatever in terms of whether you're eating a sort of pizza or any pork dishes or any sort of medium weight meat it's fantastic you know equally if you just want to have a couple of glasses of wine and you know it works well with that it's not going to beat you over the head and you know because he's biodynamic and using a minimal amount of additives some will have you believe it won't give you a hangover but rest rest assured you can certainly drink enough of it <laughs> to do that um but it, it's a wonderful, wonderful part of the area, probably an hour and a half outside of Pisa. Um, you know, so, you know, really is it, you know, it's, it's hilly, it's undulating area, um, whereas his, his, uh, his vineyards are in almost a microclimate where there's a small valley, the temperatures don't get blazingly hot. So again, that's helping the fruit with its acidity and they're never over the top or too clunky, um, which... You know, which is another reason why it was very easy to select Cosimo Massini as the um, the wine for Tuscany, really. Even though it, we did try our very best to get a Montalcino in there, that's for sure. That's for sure. Well, I, I said, Greg, that I, I sort of first fell in love with Italian wine in Tuscany, and especially that region, sort of Montalcino region. But um, you know, you we talked you talked about how how sort of multi-layered wine is and you know the reasons to get interested in wine but one thing with me is that i i find it much easier to get really passionate and interested and excited about wines when i can also have a visual a mental image of the place 
And I was talking to someone recently about, you're from Australia, and um, I've sort of veered away from Australian wines over the years, you know, as fantastic as they are, simply because I've never been to Australia, and I don't, it doesn't have that extra dimension for me where it takes me somewhere, because I can't visualise. I think, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head for me in terms of one of the reasons why I love wine so much, in terms of uh, it transport, it's the one thing... I mean, food does as well, but it tra- it can transport you. It can take you away. It can captivate you and take you away from what it from whatever whatever drudge you might be experiencing. It's like in a the cheap day. airfare, isn't it? Exactly. And interestingly, you say that I've got a we've got a number of customers who um, certainly through January, in terms of it was pretty bleak, and they they weren't able to travel. They made up their own their own European getaway, whereas. We, you know, so through the month, of, I had one one couple, and through the month of January, every Friday, Friday and Saturday was a different theme. So, and that one week was was Spain, next week was Tenerife, next week was was it um, was Sicily, you know, next week was Tuscany, and it it was really quite fun trying to match the things that they were eating and doing, and it really did, I suppose, entertain them in terms of that little project where they could go ahead and sort of do different things and eat eat and drink different things that would actually make them remember their holidays and do things like that. So you're exactly right. And even now, when we're talking about that, I can still remember sitting sitting in um, in, the, in the villa at Cosimo Massini and basically, basically outside the tasting room looking down into the vineyards where the first thing you you overlook is his vegetable patch where he um, that grows the vegetables that feed his his team that come in and do the harvest who are generally working volunteers or they're all students in wine and yeah that's fantastic it just almost transports you back there where you especially when you smell the wine it almost like you smell the air you smell the herbs and the the, the things local to that local to that vineyard and that's why I get so excited. So next, Greg, we go from, well, one extreme to another, sort of a, a deep, juicy Tuscan red to we're going up to the Prosecco region. Stage 14, we've done well here. Again, the Adami Prosecco. It's again maybe three or four kilometers off the route this time of stage fourteen, and um, but this is a uh, you told me this is a slightly different prosecco, and I was intrigued by this col fondo, and um, the col fondo points to the fact that it's a slightly different prosecco made with a sort of champagne type method, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. I mean, this is not your normal prosecco, and I, for two reasons: one, the col fondo method. And secondly, my wife actually likes it. She she actually hates most other prosecco. So, um, and partly the reason is it is made in a very similar fashion to champagne and cava, where it's made it spends time an expended period of time on the lees. Now, without getting too technical, but the lees are the dead yeasts that aid the fermentation of the wine. But by by letting them stay on stay on the the lees, it it adds an extra level of complexity, uh, almost slightly textural creaminess to it. You know, like you'll often hear of Muscadet Soli. Well, that wine is basically the same thing. The wine has been uh, fermented and aged on the lees. 
so it develops that extra dimension. Now, this certainly does, goes into the bottle with the lees as well, so it ferments in the bottle, which is why we've nicknamed it the Dirty Prosecco, because it, in terms of, it is unfiltered, it is, uh, but it adds a phenomenal dimension to the wine. Now, it, some people will then ask, oh, because of that sediment or the lees, is it a pet nap? Well, no, it's made as a wine previously and then goes into bottle. Um, and then certainly for this particular producer, I think it sort of reflects a different level of minerality. It enhances the citrus aspect. And yes, it is bone dry. It really is, you know, a lot, a lot drier and a lot fresher than a lot of other Prosecco. Because when you see extra dry on a Prosecco in terms of it's not, it's not dry as what you might get in a Cava or a Champagne. And I think this dimension really does add something to it and really is a, in terms of, I'm expecting a few people to get a kind of surprise because it is cloudy. It has got a little bit of texture, but it really is a fabulous bottle of wine. And definitely, I think will change a lot of people's percep perception of what a Prosecco can do, you know, in terms of, um, it can actually sort of offer a lot more enjoyment, really. Greg, just sort of standing back and observing the the incredible meteoric rise of, of Prosecco, the kind of Prosecco rampage of the last 20, 25 years. I mean, it leaves me, I, I've sort of been shocked by it as well because I knew Prosecco. I actually worked in a, on a vineyard um, in Prosecco very briefly about 20 odd years ago. And back then, no one in certainly the UK would have heard of Prosecco. And then all of a sudden, 10 years later, it was sort of, um, overtaking champagne became ubiquitous and you know all sorts of reasons for that right down to sort of the industrialization of that area of Italy and how sort of efficient they were with production and stuff but there are still elements of it that I don't I don't understand how this has happened and I've spoken to people in Italy about it and and they sometimes give good answers and sometimes they sort of shrug their shoulders as well what what why has it happened how has it happened and what do you think of it for me I think it was it's very much a number of uh a number of elements that just resulted in the perfect storm. I think you know, the British pub, certainly, I mean, speaking about I said, the wine drinking public in the Western world, I think is probably a, a good, nice, broad, um, a broad focus, is I think they were lacking, you had champagne, which was seen as, as a special event drink or something very elitist that you're only going to do on certain occasions, but people still wanted something fun, fun, fizzy, and a little bit more um, something that they could drink on its own as an aperitif. And sure, you could you could find different wines and things like that, but Carver really hadn't... Carver had the same opportunity and didn't capitalise on it. But I think the, as you say, the ability, as you mentioned, the, the, the ability for them the, to upscale the, the volume in, in Prosecco production was able to fuel that demand and also, I think the focus to get to get this into the supermarkets, into the, you know, into that drinker, the younger drinker, then then just sort of perpetuated itself over the years, really, where it really did become an ex acceptable aperitif, and I think, or an, just an acceptable drink in the pub, and I think I think it really did sort of explode in that way, and I think Britain is definitely the largest prosecco market, you know, Britain. I mean, the US is probably a bigger market by volume, but in terms of by saturation, percentage of saturation in the public, I think I think Britain is hard to beat in terms of 
that fascination and with Prosecco, which is a good thing. And I think Cremont certainly didn't wasn't coordinated like Prosecco. You know, like for example, with sure France makes a lot of good Cremont, but the fact is you have a Cremont de Loire, you have a Cremont de Alsace, and it's all quite disparate. Whereas in I think the 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 Italian you know certainly in Prosecco at Veneto they got behind the product and actually got it placed in the you know in the supermarkets and really drove the market that way. But the only other the only other similar thing I've ever seen is Malbec from Argentina in terms of being a you know those two those two wines there's n there's no other domination I can think about it where I've seen such a rapid growth where they just developed this sudden sudden mainstream popularity that really was you know a beast really I've searched in vain for a book on it um to explain or a documentary to explain sort of how it's happened from a to z and and haven't really found one to date it's quite interesting i mean talking to some of the producers i know you do hear some some stories of um white wines making that making their way up the highway into prosecco because they cut just in order to meet the demand the, the immense demand they had for um for prosecco really so it's using sort of other varietals in there but you know as opposed to glera which you know is i think you know, we'll only to you know time will tell us whether that sort of it, it will stay forever but i think it's it's just a phenomenal i still think it's one of the most phenomenal brand i suppose product positioning that we've ever seen really and it, I don't. I almost don't think it was conscious. I think it just was the perfect storm. Yeah, one thing, Greg, that has even occurred to me is that, um, you know, it was a name that sounded quintessentially Italian, but was easy enough for people to pronounce and easily recognisable. Whereas, you know, that might not have been the case with something else. It was Franciacorta, or you know, I mean, it can even come down to to things like that. Yeah, no, and it's. I, I mean, Franciacorta as well was price prohibitive so you're almost back in the in the champagne elitism area and you know French is a wonderful wine in itself I mean there's you know, but it it is at champagne price points and I think and it almost was because of that price barrier it's seen for most people as something oh it's a special event wine or it's a it's a celebratory wine whereas I think I think Prosecco was kind of people wanted something that they could drink every week you know and that was um and I, I there just wasn't anything there at the races really they, you know that was as enjoyable and as and as well drinking culture changed where people wanted to be able to have a few glasses as opposed to just one and i think because it is less fizzy it's easier to drink in that fashion and became became popular as well <laughs> That's stage 14. Stage 15, we've done even better because we've got, again, it's the race is going almost past the front door of the Ronco del Niemis winery, I think it's called, in uh, Friuli, um, 86 kilometers into that stage, stage 15, go past the front door in a little place called San Giovanni al Natizone. Yes, so th this, this particular producer is... Uh, Luciana recommended I, I, I look at these guys. Um, they're actually, you know, they make some truly fabulous wines. And I think, you know, they, um, they're, a, they're an amazing producer where 
the they have their own vineyards that they use for their high, some of their higher end wines in this case they work with some other organic producers in the area and they they do buy in the chardonnay fruit uh, where they want to make something pure something very you know lean and fresh and revitalizing really and i think um this that was one of the reasons why i was thinking okay do we do we look at this or do we possibly look at a pinot uh, pinot gris or pinot grigio i should say and i think certainly i the strength of this particular wine, you know, just shouted out to me. I mean, most of the, I mean, we priced the wine. The wine for us is retailing at nineteen fifty. The rest of their stable generally retails around thirty to forty pounds. Um, so they really are a very high caliber producer, um, and you know, it it just it just shouted out to us that these guys really know what they're doing, and to have something of this quality there would be. It'd just be too good an opportunity to miss out, really. We talked about wine trends in, well, in the UK, Prosecco, um, Greg, but Chardonnay, the sort of, the, the fall of, of Chardonnay or Chardonnay being gazumped by Sauvignon Blanc, um, that's an interesting one that I've certainly observed over the last 10, 15 years. How did that happen? And is it because there was a time 15 years ago when you would go into a British supermarket and every white wine or eight out of 10 white wines were chardonnay well i think i think it's sort of you i think the wine wine trade or certainly sort of wine consumers it always evolves because i think people always want something different and i think in certainly in in the case people were were bored were they you know your big gloopy australian chardonnays for example or american chardonnays people weren't People weren't enjoying and they weren't sort of didn't feel as though you could finish work on a Friday and sort of tuck into a glass and it would refresh you and uplift you the way in which Sauvignon Blanc or even, you know, Pinot Grigio or even a a glass of Prosecco would do. And I think over time that the consumer has become a little more educated and wanted something different. Um, And Sauvignon Blanc was a bit of perfect storm. You know, they were there at the right place with in New Zealand with such a a vibrant, accessible product at a reasonable price point, very much like Prosecco was, and the market jumped on it. And now what we're starting to see is, I'm starting to see a lot of consumers say, I want a dry, fresh white wine, but I don't want Sauvignon Blanc. And and I think that's where we're seeing fresher styles of, you know, sort of like dry Rieslings come back in the frame, Alborino, um, you know, Pecorino, and even things like sort of an oak, uh, an unoaked or a very modestly oak Chardonnay, which is what we're looking at here, come back into the frame, and people are starting to enjoy something with it. It shows a bit of sort of minerality, you know, sort of almost like some um, where you start to see something that's really refreshing, a bit more uplifting, come through. And I think, I think Chardonnay, Chardonnay has so many different variations. And I'm pleased that people are starting to see that, and they make certainly producers that are generally making a fresher, more accessible style. Uh, and I think we probably won't see it go back to what it was, but I think we will start to see a lot more people drink a bit more Chardonnay than they used to. Well, Greg, that concludes our Jira, our journey. But I'm going to ask you to think about something. We're going to move on um, just as we wrap up, but. Just think about this, and while we do, your three, your dream three Italian wines. I'm going to ask you for those in a minute, but just start thinking about them. Um, but I just was curious, Greg, um, 
obviously we, we hope that people are going to enjoy consuming these wines that we've selected for them but the generally wine consumption in the pandemic what are your hot takes a year in um how's it been for you guys i, I certainly from my observation of what how consumers have changed in what they're drinking and how much they drink and you know, certainly i think initially people drank more you know people were were at home they were bored and they you know people initially people were certainly sort of uh drinking higher volumes than the, what they're now they're drinking now uh, but I think as well what happened is people learnt to cook at home again and people people actually realised that that 20, 30 pound bottle of wine that they or $20, $30 bottle of wine that they were getting in a restaurant or a pub you could get for a third of the price you know and the, uh, and people were upgrading and investing more in themselves and buying a lot being a bit more adventurous with what they were buying as well so we found people coming to us certainly when the shop opened i mean people yes our home delivery business initially was fantastic and it was very strong then as things started to open up in sort of july and august people were were crawling were climbing the walls and were you know dive back in the shop and almost you know enjoy the conversation that level of engagement where they wanted to talk to you and understand a bit more and as a result they'd be a bit more adventurous with with some of the wines they were choosing for example you know being able think grapes you know varieties like Timarasso and Pecorino um, Malvasia people were sort of opening their eyes to these type of wines and wanted to drink more of them and I think definitely we saw people become more adventurous and I think as and as well with um various price rises in the likes of burgundy for example people now tuning into nebbiolo you know that burgundy drinker now knows he's not going to get a decent bottle of, bottle of burgundy for under 30 quid oh i'll look at this pinot nero from tuscany or I'll look at the uh you know from alta dj or look at something different that's going to give him that freshness and that that similar flavor but at a, at a slightly kinder price point as well um, but I do think people have become certainly more adventurous and definitely definitely investing more in themselves really and I think that above all else is you know I think is a positive thing where I think getting the consumer out of the supermarket aisle and actually for us being able to offer that service where people can come in as a shop and actually really sort of enjoy the experience of looking around and talking about what they're going to match with and I think the standard question we get asked or standard question my staff ask when you come into the shop is you know do you want a white or red it's like what are you eating tonight and we'll give them some options from that and a lot of our customers are conditioned to that and we'll come in and say look I'm cooking I'm, I'm cooking this ragu a duck ragu tonight what am I going to have with that and things like that and it's it's really, it's been really enjoyable. That's been a really enjoyable side to things. I mean, yes, it's been a little bit depressing in a few, but you know, but equally, I think that people have learnt to cook again at home and enjoying that gastronomic and adventure. Almost as we've said before, allowing themselves to be transported out of, you know, out of whatever drudgery they're they're in they're in right then and there. Well, we better not talk about or start talking about italian food because then we will be here for we all will night. be but there all Greg, night last so last thing you th money's no object we're not you know 
Um, we're not constrained in any way now. Three bottles of Italian wine. I mean, you can name producers if you want, if not just sort of regions and roughly types. But I mean, I'm glad you've asked me this question on the spot. Otherwise, I could deliberate on this for days. <laughs> so, because there's there's a hell of a lot of good kid out there, and you could always. The more, again, like we said before, the more you think about it, the more you go, oh, no, I could have this, I could have this. Um, but certainly off the cuff, um, I initially I would say um, there's one wine from a producer called Borgo de Tio, Borgo de Tio in Collio. He he makes an absolutely sensational Malvasia uh, that is, is barrel-aged in large oak barrels. Very, very subtle influence over the wine. You just get this lovely sort of complex complex flavor coming through where you you, you get hints of stone fruit but there, it, it has a almost like a, a stone fruit marmalade almost where you get a nice little tang to it and just very really easy to sort of really easy to match with foods and sort of anything like a from a roast chicken type of thing to a to a mushroom risotto it would certainly live in that space for sure so that so you you've thrown me you've thrown me by going for a white from friuli in well we're gonna we're gonna put that on the third step of the podium yeah I think. so in terms of Who, i'm, what, I'm uh, gonna give you i'm gonna first. give you three things i'm gonna give you three different wines and sort of that's number one um second of all um uh, actually a wine from our a sicilian wine from our case last year this is sacrilegious we've got we've we've Name two wines and none of them. You haven't you haven't named one Barolo or Barbaresco or Brunello. So I I kind of so the the Sicilian wine I was thinking of was the reverse of Nero Davola that we had last year, and again, it kind of as soon as I drank that wine, it just made me think of a big big steak Fiorentina, you know, really sort of almost gutsy robust flavors that would sort of live up to that tannin and so forth so an amarone you'd certainly be in the frame on something like that um but i think in this case that's kind of why i would lean that direction and you know in terms of and you know in terms of i think it a nero davila always a well-made nero davila for me i suppose it's almost sunshine in a bottle. You get a lot of warmth and heat from that. And you do get a bit of minerality off there, obviously because of Etna and so forth. But yeah, lovely wine. And then finally... Come on, you've got to go... go, go blow, the, blow the budget, Greg. Go for a Biondi Santi Brunello or something like that. A Brunello is a great call, actually. Or what I'm thinking is... Um, something I had recently, the uh, Roccolo Grassi Valpolicella Rapasso. You know, really... Almost like a baby Amarone, you know, in terms of it. But it, it's just sometimes Amarone, you've got to wait for it to settle down. And this was a sort of relatively younger vintage. Um, but, oh, it was delicious. I mean, we put it this way, we're at about the £45 mark anyway. But it's just really sort of ripe fruits, almost like a, a vibrant a vibrant cherry cherry berry conserve almost you know it was just really intense flavor very much made in a similar style to amarone but just not not as dusty if you know what i mean and not quite so tannic oh it was a beautiful wine i mean but again as i said i could not probably name another 12 wines that <laughs> it's just sort of off the cuff but the Ricola grassi for me really rich but equally still has a vein of freshness that just makes you want to come back for another glass and 
I suppose that's probably why I didn't say... Well, with Barolo, I've had some good Barolo, but when someone once said to me, when is Barolo too old to drink? <laughs> so in terms of... Because I think, I, I must admit, on Barolo, we've seen a sort of evolution where um, I think the new wave of Barolo producers are finally producing something that's a little bit more lively and a bit more energetic, where you can drink it within five years as opposed to having to wait 20 years, which is which is a good thing, actually. We haven't got that long. No, we haven't we got don't. that long. Craig, will you be watching the Giro d'Italia? I will I will be this year because ho- hopefully I'll have a little bit more time than what I had last year, that's for sure. So, um, yeah, no, definitely. Um, it's, I mean, you'll probably ridicule me on this. It's usually on Eurosport. Um, it's probably the best place to watch it. Um but yeah, I I will be actually. I mean, I I do generally watch the highlights from the Tour de France. Um, that's probably the main one. I I probably with the the Velta and the likes of that. I'll always check the 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 website. But in terms of, I think this year I will get amongst I will get amongst the Giro actually. Definitely, definitely. Well, Greg, we'll catch up with you again to discuss our Tour de France wines and our Velta wines. But in the meantime, cheers, salute, and salute. thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dan. Brilliant. For details of how to order our Giro d'Italia Girovagando selection, and indeed our 2021 Tour de France and Vuelta selections, log on to thecyclingpodcast.com. Or order directly from Divine Sellers at the website address included in the show notes to this episode. Please drink responsibly at all times and indeed during the Giro. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 